Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. On November 22nd, 2022, the world turned, tuned in to the famous World Cup soccer tournament. This international tournament only occurs every four years, and if you care anything about soccer, you definitely are tuning in, especially if a team from your nation is actually in it. And that hasn't happened for the U.S. in a little bit, and so some of us tuned into that tournament. It was uh, an amazing start to the tournament. One of uh, the favorites of the tournament, one of the teams that, that people thought they could win the entire thing, they lost on the first day in one of the first games, and the world reacted. The headlines and the media coverage jumped all over it and obviously came up with the worst possible scenarios for this great club. Headlines read as follows. One of the greatest World Cup upsets ever. Another described it as a massive upset. The team itself talked and said, we're shocked and saddened by the loss. This upset raises doubts about, some said, the team's fitness. Are their hopes for the World Cup championship over? Now, if you know anything about the World Cup, it's kind of a weird tournament. It actually has two phases. The first phase, you actually have kind of this round robin within division. You play three other teams and you get points. So truthfully, uh, as long as you play it right, you're going to come out of that round, you know, with a win or a couple of ties. The U.S. didn't even win a game. We tied uh, no, we did win a game, but we tied two games, and we still came out as the second team. So this is the way the tournament works. And essentially, that entire first round is a, a, a gift or, or several second-chance opportunities. Now, the second phase of the tournament is literally called the knockout round. So you lose there, you're done. You fly home. That's it. Well, this team lost their first game and did not lose another game for the rest of the tournament. Argentina began with a stunning first game loss to Saudi Arabia, and some described it as the best NFL team losing to a peewee football team. I don't know if that was fair, but it is kind of the nature of soccer. But they finished the tournament with just as stunning a win over France. Argentina took advantage of their second chance, and they used it to its fullest. Now, here in Jonah 3, I think that we see that God also offers second chances. Now, often if we're not careful, we can get the idea that if we sin against God, if we fail, if we struggle, if we falter, it's kind of hopeless, We've kind of passed the point of no return, and, and it's over. We're just, we're in trouble, right? Because we've failed. 
But the truth is, the message of Jonah 3, in many ways, flies in the face of that. Both the prophet and this entire city are given a second chance. And what I want you to note with me today as we walk through this is that God mercifully offers second chances through forgiveness of all who willingly submit to the word. All who willingly yield to God's word, God offers a second chance. Now remember, as we looked at this book and kind of introduced it several weeks ago, Jonah's the only prophet that does not address Judah or Israel. It's the only prophecy, it's the only prophetic book that is not directly to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. Remember the focus of Jonah as we begin. You have a Jewish prophet, he's called to prophesy to Nineveh, and instead of doing that, he runs. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh, he doesn't want to preach to them, so he runs. He can't get away from God, we discover in chapter 1. They throw him out of the boat, the great fish swallows him, and chapter 2 is really, it shifts. It shifts from a story to this poem. This poem of thanksgiving. Now, remember as we discussed the poem last week, Jonah is in the belly of the fish. So he's offering this prayer of thanksgiving from the belly of the fish. You know, in some ways we could argue maybe he's not out of the woods yet, you know. Uh, He's still kind of in trouble. Well, the end of chapter 2 Jonah's vomited out on land. And in Jonah chapter 3 and 4 then, we turn back to the narrative, back to the story, the account of Jonah and his prophecy to Nineveh. So again, as we walk through this today, I want you to note this. God mercifully offers second chances through forgiveness for all who willingly submit to his word. And one of the keys with Jonah is the response to the word. From the very beginning, the first words of Jonah's book of this prophecy are the words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Well, guess where we begin in chapter 3? If you noticed as we read it a few minutes ago, we begin in exactly the same place we started. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And literally that phrase is identical to chapter 1 and verse 1 except for one thing. Literally in the original, all we're missing is Jonah, or excuse me, the son of Amati or Amittai. And so Amittai. And so that's it. This is exactly the same sentence. If you look at it in the original, that's it. Son of uh, Amity, it is missing. That's it. So everything else is the same. And literally, in verse 2, as he goes on, again, same thing. He, he, He says the exact same thing. Now, remember, this isn't the second time Jonah's heard it. It's the third. Because the sea captain comes to Jonah in the middle of chapter 1, and he says to Jonah what? Get up! And call out, right, to your God. Well, remember for Jonah, he's probably thinking, ah, you got to be kidding me, right? I, I can't get away from this call. Well, here we go again. 
The, the third time that he hears it, verse 2, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. And in our translation, it says preach, but it's really the word call. Call out this message that I'm going to give to you. Now, immediately as we begin, or immediately as Jonah is dumped out on land again, God gives him the message. Now, if you recall from the maps that we looked at last week, Jonah is heading in exactly the opposite direction. And some, there is the perception by some, and I've actually heard people say it. I don't know if you have. But when Jonah gets dumped on land, essentially he's right there at Nineveh. That's not true. If you looked at the map, if you recall, Nineveh is 500 miles inland. So guess what Jonah gets to do for five, a 500-mile walk, right? He's stewing on, I, got, I still got to go to Nineveh. And I still got to call out to Nineveh. And I'm still not really, I'm not sure that I'm really happy about this. But what choice do I have? Right? What choice? God literally had a fish swallow me and bring me back. I don't think I can escape. Okay, so I'm going to go to Nineveh. So he's walking to Nineveh. He's headed to Nineveh. But this time he knows he can't get away. Now, I want you to think for a moment. Have you ever engaged with the word and you've kind of been convicted over what you've heard? But you walk away and you, for whatever reason, you don't change. You know you were convicted. You, you, you felt it. The Spirit of God was at work in your heart. You knew it. But you walked away and you weren't changed. And again... That message, that truth, that word, that comes to you again. Maybe in private time with the Lord. Maybe in another message, but you're confronted with it again. And here's the question. How do you respond to the word? One of the truths that's overarching in this prophecy of Jonah is simply this. How do you respond to the word? What will you do with the word? And the truth is, if we are honest, a lot of us are a lot more like Jonah than we would like to admit. Jonah knew Yahweh. Well, what does he tell the sailors? Hey, listen, I I'm a Hebrew and I worship Yahweh. I worship the Lord. But how was that impacting his life? He literally ran from the word of the Lord. He, he literally was trying to flee from the presence of the Lord, which truthfully, likely, he knows full well. You know, the Psalms tell us, if I go to the depths of the sea, even there, even there, you're with me. Even there, you can see me. Well, Jonah experienced that. So he's trying to flee, and, and what's that going to accomplish? Well, nothing. And yet... He resisted, rejected the word of the Lord. How do you respond to the word of God? What do you do with it? Folks, the truth is every time we engage the word, there's a decision that has to be made. You have to decide something. Am I going to obey this? Am I going to respond to this? Am I going to accept it? Am I going to submit to it? Is it going to change the way that I think and the way that I act? Every single time. Now, how do we respond to the word? 
by God's grace, we should obey. Because the truth is, our lives, obviously, we're not going to be swallowed by a fish, I don't think. I don't imagine that that's going to happen to any of us. And I doubt very much it's ever happened to any of us. But the truth is, there is a danger in rejecting the word of God, just like there was for Jonah and the Ninevites. There are consequences when we refuse it, when we deny its truth, when we say that doesn't apply to me, or when we decide, you know what, I just, I don't think I can do that. That's not my personality. That's not the way I was raised. That's not where I come from. Folks, that's not the issue. The issue is, will we submit to the word? Will you? Jonah here realizes, I don't have another option. Okay, I'll submit. What would God have to do to bring you to that place that you would submit? So keep going. Look at what he says in verse 2. Get up, go, and you're going to call out to them. So Jonah gets up and he goes to Nineveh according to the Lord's command, according to the word of the Lord. Now, one of the things that's going to come up in verse 2 and verse 3, it'll come up later, it's come up already in chapter 1, is the description of Nineveh. He says, go to the great city. In verse 3, he says, now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three days walk. Now, what, what the assumption for all of us is, is that the great city is describing its width, its actual size. If you do some historical research, it can be difficult to suggest that it actually would take Jonah three days to walk across the city. The, the city wasn't that big. Some suggest it was two or three miles. Now, some of you say, yeah, it might take me three days to walk two or three miles. I, I don't think it would. Once you started, I think you'd be surprised how quickly you'd get to two or three miles, right? But, but it's probably not going to take him three days. So what is this talking about? Um, probably it's a couple of things. Some suggest Jonah stopping along the way to give a more extended explanation of the message. And certainly that's possible, though I would argue against that, and I'll tell you why. Because Jonah's attitude hasn't changed. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But Jonah's spirit in some respects towards Nineveh, it's not really different. Some perceive in chapter 2 that Jonah's repented. Jonah, remember, we look at verse 9 and 10, Jonah's still thinking about those sailors up there that don't get it like he does. You know what I mean? Remember all the eyes in there? Jonah's still consumed with I, 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 me, 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 me. So in some respects, I think Jonah, this is still a struggle for him. And yet he's still going to go obey the command of the Lord because he realizes I can't get away from it. So this great city, some suggest within the ancient Near East culture, when a diplomat would come, it always involved a three-day visit. There was the first day, kind of a greeting and a welcome. The second day, that diplomat would conduct their business. And the third day was kind of a farewell, uh, a departure day. So some suggest that's exactly what's going on for Nineveh here. When this guy walks into town, 
they kind of discover him. They kind of figure out that he's there. And especially as he's declaring this message, uh, some suggest there's 100,000 to 200,000 people, children within this city. Well, in a city that size and you have a guy coming in declaring that the city's going to be destroyed, I think the word might spread. So there's the suggestion that's why that's what this description of three days walk is. Whatever it is, the point is Jonah goes and he shares this message potentially for three days. Now, another piece of this that's interesting is that reference in verse 3. Look at again what he says in verse 3. He says, now Nineveh was an extremely great city. Now, because of the perception of the meaning that it is size, there, are, there is one very important word that is not translated in English. And that is literally the name for God. The idea of this phrase is actually Nineveh was an extremely great city to God. That's literally the idea of this word. Now, why doesn't it get translated? Well, uh, whenever translation is done, there's interpretation that has to happen. And one of the interpretations of that phrase is that the greatness of God is used as an idiom or an expression to kind of explain the greatness of the city. So it's almost used as an image. You know how great God is. That's how great this city was. Now, one really, really big problem. There is no occurrence anywhere in the whole rest of the Old Testament in which God would be used as an example for describing something else as great. That never happens. So why would that happen here? It doesn't in some ways make sense. So I think actually the interpretation there, I think actually the meaning there is exactly what it would be interpreted as. This city was great to God. Meaning this, God cared about Nineveh. God cared about Nineveh, and that is exactly why he is sending Jonah to preach. This was a city that God was concerned for. This is a city that mattered to God. Now, if you think about it from Jonah's perspective, that's the problem. Jonah doesn't think this city should matter to God. Why? Because of chapter 1, those first couple of verses, their wickedness has come up before God. Guess what? Their wickedness had come up before Jonah and the rest of Israel too. These people were vile. Some of the most cruel and heinous descriptions of a conquering people doing to a conquered people come from these people, the Assyrians. Nineveh was throughout its history the capital of the empire of Assyria. These people, in a sense, they're leading the charge of the wickedness of Assyria. And Jonah knows it. And Jonah doesn't think they do deserve God's kindness. And Jonah doesn't think God should care about them. And that's why he doesn't want to go in the first place. And you say, well, how do you know that? He, you know, he kind of changes his tune in chapter 2. Because he doesn't change his tune in chapter 4. We only have two recorded prayers of Jonah. Chapter 2 and chapter 4. And the prayer in chapter 4 is, guess what? I knew you were going to do this. I knew this is, a, this is exactly how you are. 
right? Except in this case, it's really a positive, not a negative. Some of you have heard that before. Well, in this case, this is an accusation of God's kindness. And that's why I think that's exactly what he's describing here. This is a city that God cares about. Why? Because God created them. You know, if we're not careful at times, we can look at people that don't fit into our cultural social bubble and we can say, eh. And in some respects, that's exactly where Jonah was. Eh. God doesn't care about them. God cares about me. I grew up hearing about God. I'm the prophet of God. I know God. I know Yahweh. You people don't. You don't get it. And if we're not careful, that is exactly how we can think and even worse, how we can respond to others. The people that you engage with on a daily basis, even those that might get under your skin, sometimes literally make your skin crawl a little bit. God cares for them, just like he cares for you. And in some respects, this is the message, another one of the themes of this book of Jonah. God cares for his creation even those that are outside of Israel. This is a clear demonstration of that. So do you understand today first that you matter to God? God cares about you. But he also cares about those that you engage with. He loves them too. You go on in, in verse 3 again, and so Jonah, he goes to the city, he goes through for this three-day walk, and as he sets out on the first day of uh, walking through the city, he proclaims, or he calls out. Now, a couple things are interesting about this word to call out. It's literally our word in the New Testament to preach or to proclaim. So Jonah is, in essence, going through this city, heralding, preaching. Now, uh, unlike... Some preachers, you know, Jude, I want you to keep your comments to yourself. Jonah's message was very brief. It's literally five words in the Hebrew. That's it. Jonah's message is literally, as he walks through this city, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, two, two interesting notes. Number one... The Bible does tell us in, in verse 1 and 2, Jonah went to deliver the message of God. So, is this the message of God? To some extent, yes. But I want you to think for a moment about this message. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Did you hear, did you hear what he said, Frida? 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. I wonder what that means. Now, as far as we know, there's no introduction of Yahweh, the, the judge, the creator. There, there's no address of the sin. Now, maybe for the Assyrians, they knew how wicked they were, and so they didn't need to address that. Right? They understood. Jonah understood. The peoples of the earth understood with this empire. They were evil. So maybe that didn't need to be stated. There's no explanation of the judgment. No idea what this judgment is. No idea what's coming. Here it is. 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Demolished, the CSB says. Literally overturned. That's the idea of the word. To be turned upside down through destruction. 
Now, one of the things that's interesting and one of the pieces that's interesting about this city is this city was widely recognized second in the ancient world only to the great city of Babylon. This was a pretty amazing place. Uh, This was a city that uh, in the ancient world was known for being one of the greatest cities ever. And Jonah walks in and says, it's going to be destroyed. 40 days, you're going to be wiped out. Now that's interesting. What's this mean to be turned upside down? Jonah seems to present this very minimalist, very reluctant in a sense message to the Ninevites. In some ways, there's almost this reticence on the part of of Jonah to truly say who Yahweh is who they're turning to, how they ought to respond. Jonah does what he has to do to fulfill the word of God, to fulfill the command of God. Have you ever heard the message of God and you did the least possible? You knew what was right. You knew how far you should go. You knew what it meant to obey God. But you're not interested in that, like Jonah. You'll do what you have to do. You'll go as far as you have to go. You'll fulfill the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. You remember the group in the New Testament that lived that way? (laughs) You see what I'm saying? This is Jonah. And the self-righteous spirit, perspective, attitude of Jonah reflects in his compassion towards others. And folks, the truth is, so does ours. So does yours. Sometimes our thoughts about ourselves and what we know and our relationship with God reflect on the way that we engage others. It's clear as a bell to them. It's clear as a bell maybe to those around you, but you can miss it because in your mind, you're right and you know the truth and you have the message and you know what needs to be said. This is Jonah. And he obeys God as far as he has to obey God to not be swallowed by another fish. But that's it. That's it. That's all. That's all he's going to give. How do we respond to the word? How do you? When God calls for us to genuinely, compassionately, gently care for one another, do you look at that and say, no, that's a sign of weakness. I'm not doing that. I don't care about, I don't care if that's how Jesus interacted with others. Because truthfully, folks, if we look at it and refuse to do it, that is what we're saying. I don't care. How do we engage each other. How do we engage others? Listen carefully. You are loudly screaming what you truly believe about God by the way you treat one another and those that you engage with on the outside of this place. Your neighbors, your friends, your associates, strangers. You are declaring what you truly believe about God. And I don't know about you, but there isn't anything that's more convicting to me. How do we engage one another? When our doors are closed and we think no one can hear, how do we 
engage each other. This is where Jonah was. This is the battle he was fighting. Now here's what's amazing. He goes in, very minimal message, right? 40 days, city's going to be turned upside down, going to be demolished, going to be destroyed. That's it. That's all I'm going to tell you, right? That's it. How does Nineveh respond? Truthfully, God's already at work in the city. You want to know how? Because of their response. Their response indicates God is already at work. Look at what they, look at what they do in verse 5. So then the people of Nineveh believed God. That's it. I mean, you get that message and you're like, okay, we believe God. <laughs> you know? I mean, listen, we struggle to believe God with a lot more information than that, don't we? Right? We struggle to believe God with our future, maybe our, 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 our health, maybe our finances, uh, maybe relationships. We struggle to truly believe God with a whole lot more information than they were given. Five Hebrew words and they believed God. It, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it speaks to the work of God in their lives. It also speaks to the readiness of this people to hear very likely because of the circumstances of Assyria at the time, and it is believed, one of the, the, the hurdles with this passage is why is the king of Nineveh only the king of Nineveh? Why wouldn't he have been called the king of Assyria? Well, because Assyria at this point likely has been massively weakened in their power. And as most empires do, they split up the terrain and so likely this ruler is literally only the ruler of the city of Nineveh. That's it. He doesn't have power outside of Nineveh, but he has it inside Nineveh. And the people inside Nineveh, he preaches, Jonah preaches to these people, and they respond, and this king humbles himself. Listen carefully, that's not a common trait of world leaders to humble themselves at the message of God, period. It's just not. That is not how this goes. But it does for him. And likely it does because of the scenario in which they find themselves. When Jonah said, 40 days and Nineveh will be demolished, the people thought, that's true. Look at how everything's been going. Look at where we are. We, we could be demolished. We haven't been there in our, in our empire's history before, but we could now. And so they turn. They believe God. Now, what's interesting is, is the use of this word. The response is incredible, but the word believe is fascinating. The word for believe here is used many, many times throughout the Old Testament, and it's used to describe trust or believe, belief. It is used to describe Abraham in the famous text that's quoted many, many times in the New Testament, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the promises of God and it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. That's the word used here. They believed God. They believed what they were told. Now, What's interesting is, what does that mean? For, for most of us, as we interpret the Bible, we want to bring everything back to kind of a bottom line, saved, not saved, saved, not saved. In some respects, 
we, we don't truly know saved or not saved for this city of Nineveh. Now, some would suggest to us, of course, they all got saved. But in truth, if you look later on, and we talked about this last week in the Q&A, 90 years later, Nahum comes and he says, Nineveh is going to be wiped out. You're done. And there is no relenting on this message. It's over. Now, how, how do they get to that? Well, potentially, they didn't truly turn to become followers of Yahweh. And if you notice, for the rest of this text... The word God, Elohim, is used rather than the word that has been used from the beginning for God, Yahweh. We, we do have a shift. That shift is interesting. Now, what does that mean? Well, I don't know that it has to mean anything one way or the other other than to say this. God, and we'll see this in a minute, God forgives them. So they believe, they repent, God forgives them. That's it. That's, that's what we need to know. That's the truth that's communicated to us here in Jonah 3. So whether or not they become Yahweh followers like the Jews, whether or not they're converting to Judaism, likely that's not the issue. Whether they did it right or did everything the way that they ought to have done it or understood everything about Yahweh, that, that's not the issue in Jonah 3. The issue is this. They were confronted with their position before God. And what did they do? They believed. They repented. And God forgave. That's what's important. That's what we're supposed to get, right? Okay. So the conclusion of verse 5, he kind of finishes this up and he says... So they proclaim this fast, sackcloth and ashes. And this is the people right now. This is, this is just the everyday, workaday world guys in Nineveh. The people, they collectively say, hey, let's put on sackcloth and ashes. We're, we're repenting of our sin. And he literally says, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And what that means is, it means from the most important person in Nineveh to the street beggar that nobody knew his name on the corner. All of them. And the emphasis of that phrase is simply this. It demonstrates the totality. This was not a select group. This was the city collectively turning, believing, repenting, and receiving the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy of God. The king now gets involved. And it's fascinating when you see when this reaches the king's ears, what he does, he literally, he gets up off his throne. Again, not characteristic of ancient Near Eastern dictators who were uh, running an empire at the time, right? That's not characteristic. He doesn't get up off his throne. But this guy, he gets up off his throne. He takes off his royal robe. He puts on sackcloth and he sits in ashes. This guy wants to clearly communicate humility repentance, admission. We're wrong. We're wrong. We've gone the wrong way. We, we've done wrong. We've sinned against God. We admit it. And we're going to humble ourselves before Him. This is a vivid display of humility and repentance, penance, mourning 
for his own personal sins. But he doesn't stop there. He's going to move now again to the whole city. And so he makes this decree, verses 7 through 9. He gives this big, long decree for all the people, what they're supposed to do, for how they're supposed to respond. Animals. He includes the animals. And literally, in verse 7, do you realize he says, they must not eat. Literally, it means go to pasture. Don't let them out of the barn. Don't let them near food. We, we don't even want them to accidentally eat some grass. You know? No eating. No drinking for anybody. And furthermore, everybody's supposed to be covered with sackcloth. So that's the first piece. You have this, this mourning, this admission. But the second piece, the second command that he gives to them is fascinating. He says, literally, call out earnestly to God. He literally calls for the people of Nineveh to passionately pray. Literally, earnestly is with strength. Listen, passionately call out to God and plead for mercy. We are not asking for justice. We are pleading for mercy. Beg God for mercy. This is a pagan king. Beg God for mercy. Right? Pray earnestly. Pray with passion. Pray with urgency. The final one. The king actually goes a step further and he says not only this, he legislates morality. Yeah, you get that? He says no more evil. No more violence. None. I want all the evil in the city to stop. Can you imagine if that, if the Senate came down and made that law? No more evil. It, it, it is funny because it's so foreign, right? It, it's so absurd in one level. But that is exactly what this king says. No more evil in Nineveh. All of it has to stop. So mourn, repent, plead with God for mercy, and stop doing evil. All of it. This is a very general word, and it, it includes everything. Everything that we have been doing that's evil, stop every bit of it. Why? Verse 9. Because the king has this tiny little bit of hope. The tiny bit of hope is that God will truly be merciful and not destroy the city as they deserve. The king never says, we don't deserve this. This isn't fair. It isn't right. It isn't just. He never says that. He literally says, just pray that God will change his mind. Just pray that God will not destroy us as this statement from Jonah declares, he is going to destroy us. Maybe God will turn and relent. And then he says, he may turn from his burning wrath. And literally the idea of that phrase is that his nostrils are on fire with them. Now, as we sang this morning, did you notice the times that we sang about God's wrath being appeased toward us through Christ? What a gift. We never have to be concerned as followers of Jesus that there is this burning wrath of God against your sin and against mine. Why? Because it has been fully satisfied through the work of Jesus. What a gift. But for the Ninevites, they don't know if it will be. 
They don't know if it will be satisfied. They don't know if they will be destroyed. As far as they know, it's coming no matter what they do. But they're going to do this, even if they are destroyed in 40 days. And so they respond with obedience. So again, for us, when you're confronted with the word of God, how do you respond? When was the last time you were so overwhelmed with your sin that you sat down and made a plan? I'm going to change. I have to address that. There are numerous times in my life as a teenager, as an adult, I can tell you where I was. I can tell you the message. I can tell you the passage where God was. If he had been in the room and talking to me, it would not have been more real. When has that happened for you? God was speaking to you through the word and you were like, okay, I get it. I get it. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I know I got to change. And you repent. And you put the evil off. And you earnestly call out to God. How often does that happen? Folks, what I want you to consider today, I want you to consider exactly what Jonah needed to consider. And as we'll see in chapter four, he didn't and couldn't care less about. Look at their response. When was the last time you passionately called out to God? When was the last time you saw yourself, your sin, for exactly what it was? Evil, wickedness against God. God, give me grace to put that off. This is exactly where the Ninevites are. And in verse 10, we see in some respects, obviously, we see the conclusion. Though it's not the conclusion, because all of chapter 4 is the conclusion Because really the point of this book is is about the mercy of God. In part, the mercy of God that Jonah doesn't quite get. But the mercy of God nonetheless. And so God responds now in verse 10 to the people, to their actions, to their responses. God now responds. It says in verse 10 again, so God saw their actions, that they turned Now, here's what's interesting. If you note back in verse 9, God may turn, and then he says again that same word, turn, and then that's this word again here, that they had turned. They had turned from their evil ways, so that God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. And I find that characterization fascinating, because in truth, that's exactly what this was. This is a warning of impending judgment. But Jonah does not deliver the message, if indeed he had it. He doesn't deliver the message, but God will give you mercy if you turn. Now maybe that wasn't part of the message. But if it was part of the message, we don't have that in his five words, do we? But this is the response of God. God forgives The genuine response of the Ninevites to the message of God brings God's mercy. And here's the truth that I want us to grasp today. God does not display his mercy because Nineveh got it. God does not display his mercy because they invite the prophets of Israel into Nineveh and say, we want to start a Yahweh university and we want to learn everything there is to know about him. We want to have theology classes. We want to get all of this right. They don't do that. They literally hear the message and they acknowledge we've sinned against God. 
And we got to repent. And we've got to stop doing evil. And God responds to their turn. God responds to their repentance. And it's fascinating. This word turn is used a lot in the Old Testament. Over a thousand times it is used. And many times, as you can imagine, it's used for our repentance. It's used for us turning. But it's also used several times to describe God turning in his response to humanity. It's used in Jeremiah 18. It's used in Jeremiah 26. It's used in Joel 2, 12. It's used in Micah 3, 9. Now what's interesting is, in Jonah or Joel 2, 12, it actually is used, or excuse me, in, in Jeremiah 18, it's used both positively and negatively. Literally, it's used like this. If you will do right, if you will repent, if you will turn, then I will turn. I will relent and I will not send the judgment. However, if you won't repent, then I'll repent of the good. I'll relent, I'll turn from the good that I was going to send to you, and instead I'll send the judgment that you deserve. But in that case, do you see how in a sense there's this option there for the people? If you will obey... If you will follow, if you will yield, then I'll be, I'll give you good things. I'll give you mercy. I'll give you forgiveness. And that's exactly what he does here. This is not a radical uh, theological hiccup that we have to climb or a, or a hill that we got to get over. Here's the truth. God has responded to you exactly the same way. The offer of Jesus is an offer of God to relent, to turn from the wrath that you deserve. The offer of rescue in Christ is in a sense the same offer. You can be forgiven if you will repent and turn from your sin. You can be forgiven. I can be forgiven. And by God's grace, I trust today that you have been. If you have not been forgiven, you can be today. You can be rescued from your sin today. And I trust by God's grace that you will be. This theme of repentance and forgiveness runs throughout all of Scripture. And as we looked at the gospel of Luke last year, Luke finishes that gospel in chapter 24. Remember, he says, Jesus, as he is helping the disciples understand who He is and what the Messiah means for them and truly for the world. He concludes with this, the Messiah, He's going to suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Now, here's what's fascinating. We're not there, but in two weeks we're going there. And guess what the theme of Acts is? Beginning in Jerusalem, his name is proclaimed for, so that repentance for forgiveness will be preached. Begins in Jerusalem, goes through Judea, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Even hits almost Tarshish by the end, right, of Acts. It's amazing. This is the layout, the structure of Acts. It's this reality. The forgiveness of sin explained to humanity so that they know the offer. And they have the chance to respond, to repent. God here turns from the promised judgment against these people. And God turns from the promised judgment on you and me if we will repent and turn in faith 
to Jesus. You too can be forgiven. Have you experienced that forgiveness? If you have, rejoice in it. Live in light of it. If that's true in your life, the reality is that should be impacting you every single day in the way that you respond to the word. So how do you respond to the word? As we can see, I hope, walking through this, God, he offers mercifully second chances through forgiveness for all who willingly submit to his word. Do you submit to the word? Do you yield to the word? Again, this account of the prophet Jonah and the city of Nineveh is truly an account that magnifies the mercy of God. God is merciful. He is ready to be merciful. He is ready to forgive. Forgiveness is available. What will we do with it? What will you do with it? Is that forgiveness, is that mercy impacting what you do, how you respond, the way that you live every day? It can. It should. By God's grace.